You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. That's the sound of a tractor beam. Now, tractor beams are in many UFO movies, right, Seth? Well, they are a device, yes. <laughs> what is it that they do exactly? Well, they, they, they tract. They, they, they pull things behind the, the ship if you need to somehow to tow something like a derelict enemy ship or who knows what, then you use a tractor beam. Well, we'll have a blast talking about spaceships, alien spaceships, later in the show, prompted by listeners' nominations for the best UFO movie and also the UFO controversy, why it is that despite only weak evidence for alien craft, belief in visitation persists. And we'll look at some of that evidence, including unexplained sightings by military pilots, uh, commercial pilots. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. But before we head to the skies. Let's take our brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. That's right. When our cerebellums decide to take a long lunch, our skeptic, Phil Plate, reins them back to critical thinking. And it seems that today, vacationing brains are dining on something called power bands. What are power bands, Phil? What do they do for me? (laughs) What are they going to do or what do they claim to do? These are two very different things. You know, people are always looking for some way to improve their performance, prove their stamina, their balance, whatever. And there are all kinds of companies out there who are more than willing to sell products to people like this. And the latest are these rubber bands, these rubber wristbands you can wear. And we've seen these, you know, there's the Lance Armstrong Live Strong bands and, and Stephen Colbert has one. And those those kind of wristbands are just reminders. They're just to raise money or to raise awareness or whatever. But there are companies out there that are claiming that if you buy their wristbands, these things will help you with your your stamina, your balance, whatever, you know, it'll help your athletic performance. And they make all kinds of, you know, pseudo-scientific sounding claims, like there are ions inside of our wristband, and some of them have holograms, which are tuned to your natural frequency, and they'll amplify your body's energy. And all of these words sound sciency, but they're meaningless. Your body doesn't have a frequency, and there are ions all around you all the time. It, these things, you know, when you test them, all they really do is make you feel better. It's a placebo effect. It, there's not really anything real going on here. 
well, Phil, I've seen uh, demonstrations of the effects of power bands on the web, you know, and they have some guy there, a potential customer. He holds his arms out, and, and the salesman sort of pushes on one of his arms, and the guy just sort of falls over. Then he holds a power band in his hand, and now he can't fall over anymore. And it looks pretty convincing. I mean, somehow this guy's natural power, his natural frequencies, his pure energy or whatever has been affected. Well, you've made an excellent point because you say it looks convincing. It, it kind of is convincing unless you actually try this demonstration for yourself. Now, Richard Saunders, who was a skeptic in Australia, has made videos about this exact technique. He's actually talked to some of these people who sell these bands, had the demonstration done on him, and has figured out what's going on. It really all depends on how the person doing the demonstration is putting force on the person holding the power band. He asks a person to stand up, lift one leg up like a flamingo, I guess, put their arms out, and then he pushes on their arms and they can fall off balance. Then they grab the power whatever, the wristband, and then he pushes down on their arm with all his might and the person doesn't fall over. But you can see in the video that he's pushing in two different ways. Without the power band, the person doing the demonstration isn't just pushing down, they're pushing down and away from the person's leg that's lifted up. And you can imagine, you know, when you're pushing on something that's just barely balanced that way, the person falls over. But then when the person's holding the power band, then the person running the demonstration doesn't just push down and out, he pushes down and in, which is toward the balancing point. And if you do that, the person doesn't fall over. You know, it's possible that the person running these demonstrations doesn't know this and is just told to do it a certain way and, and that's the way things are. But, you know, it, it looks pretty fishy when you see Richard doing it on his videos. Well, it sounds to me that if they do know, of course, then they're just snake oil salesmen and they're well aware that this is, you know, a conjurous trick. This is just a little bit of street magic to sell the product. And, of course, that's not illegal. You know, there's no way to know if the person demonstrating these power bands or whatever or the companies behind them, uh, you just can't know what their motivation is. You don't know if what they if what they're thinking is, yeah, we're selling a product that doesn't work, or if they really honestly think it works. But it doesn't matter. The point is, it doesn't work. And the problem here is that people are shelling out a lot of money for something that doesn't work. And the other problem is that they're getting endorsements from what seem like legitimate organizations. There are universities all across America uh, that are basically endorsing this product, letting their logos be put on the product. And they're making hundreds of millions of dollars, these companies, hundreds of millions of dollars selling something to people that simply doesn't work. But you know what? I think people need to be educated consumers and specifically may the force not be with them. <laughs> All right. Well, more power to you, Phil. Thanks very much. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate is a skeptic and keeper of the website badastronomy.com. Well, Molly, the subject of UFOs is one that's near and dear to my heart, or at least to my job, because I get emails and phone calls every day about UFOs, people who have seen things and so forth, and they automatically assume that that's part of my job, to help them explain what they've seen. Of course, we're looking for extraterrestrial life, but uh, we don't assume that it's here visiting the Earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, few people would want to meet an alien as much as I do because, after all, that would be job security for me. Seth, has there been anything that you've seen or heard that uh, has convinced you that something extraordinary is happening in our skies or on Earth? 
Well, if you mean, are we being visited? No. And this despite the fact that every week I'm going to get, you know, photos and phone calls and descriptions of of things that people have experienced. So, no. uh, I mean, I have an open mind. It isn't that I reject the idea out of hand. But then I have to consider... Is this evidence really compelling? Okay, and the evidence so far isn't compelling. But that doesn't stop the tide of UFO sightings. No, absolutely not. There are thousands of reported sightings every year, and you can be sure that there are many times that number of sightings that simply aren't reported. And given this very large corpus of reports and the appearance of new books on the subject of UFOs, it seems only reasonable to take a look and see, is there some new evidence? Has the picture changed with regard to UFOs? And the stories that seem to carry the most weight in the public's eye are those that come from trusted professionals, in particular men and women who make the sky their home, pilots and military personnel. This is a subject of a recent book by Leslie Kane. Leslie Kane is a journalist with an organization that is pushing for the release of government information about UFOs. Her book presents eyewitness accounts of UFO sightings by pilots, military personnel, and others. And it's called UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Leslie, one in four Americans claims to have seen a UFO, but your book focuses on the sightings made by pilots, generals, other military personnel... Uh, Why this group of people? Well, um, I think these people are the most credible. I'm a journalist, and I've always approached the subject matter as, you know, one who is looking for the most official and most credible sources of information. And I think most sightings that people see in general, in fact, 95% of all sightings that people call UFOs can be explained. So what I'm really interested in is, is cases that have been officially investigated where there are lots of witness, lots of physical evidence, and investigated to an extent that this, the people doing the investigations have not been able to explain the uh, sighting. Those are the ones that are of real interest. Well, do these kinds of people, I mean, you're talking about pilots, as I say, military people, uh, is there a certain category of things they see? What, what is it that they see that maybe the general public doesn't see? Well, they, for instance, a pilot could be a lot closer to something. You know, there are often military pilots, too, and there are some cases in the book of this type where they're actually sent up to investigate objects that are up in the sky. So they often will get longer look at, looks at things, and they have equipment by which they can record data. So they might have radar in their plane, or there'll be radar on the ground that can also pick up the fact that there's something there. I think you have people that are can get closer, that are more knowledgeable, that can bring in equipment and expertise to help them deal with the sighting while it's happening. Can you give me an example of the sorts of things they have seen? Yeah, there's a, quite a range. You know, it's often the, the, the most common shapes seem to be a disc-type object, what they often describe as looking metallic that behaves in very extraordinary ways. The other very common shape is a triangular craft with bright lights under it. And uh, I think what's unusual about these is that the way they behave, as I said, uh, just can't be explained through any technology that we have that we know of. And for instance, this would involve objects that can hover and then take off at the blink of an eye and just are gone upwards into the sky. Or they can make 90-degree turns. But that might be suspicious. I mean, you say a lot of them are disc-shaped, but isn't the fact that we call them flying saucers, that we expect them to be disc-shaped simply due to a reporter's error uh, back in 1947 when Kenneth Arnold reported saucers. Well, he didn't call them saucers. He said he saw objects that moved across the sky like saucers skipping in water. He wasn't describing the shape of course. He was describing the motion. And ever since, people have seen saucers. That strikes me as a little odd. 
Well, I mean, again, that that's what he saw. And so the, the, the term was used. And then the Air Force actually a few years later adopted the term unidentified flying object because they felt that the flying saucer motif wasn't the accurate one. And I don't, I don't you know, I think you, you can think of it as odd or you can think of it, well, if there really is something there that is of that shape, the fact that it's seen consistently decade after decade may not be so odd because maybe it's a verification for what what is actually going on. I mean, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, what I'm just what I'm doing and what I'm interested in is reporting the data that we have from the best possible sources and actually hoping that as a result, uh, the scientific community will take more of an interest in this. But what is actually going on is a mystery. All right. Well, let's take one of the uh, particular examples here, and that is one that's not so long ago, the 2006 sighting at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. What happened? Well, um, what happened was that during rush hour, about between 4.30 and 5 in the afternoon and a busy day at O'Hare, a number of United Airlines employees witnessed a metallic-looking disc, a disc again, here we've got the disc, which was hovering over gate C-17 at the United Airlines terminal. And it was witnessed by numerous people. The, the, the pilots on the ground were radioing about it back and forth. They were getting out and leaning out their windows and looking up at it. There were managers that were running out to the tarmac. Um, you know, lots of people saw it. It was actually somebody called into the tower. One of the United Airlines people called the FAA tower to report it. So there's lots on record about the actual sighting. And after at least five minutes, we know it was at least five, possibly longer, this object shot, it was actually hovering just underneath a cloud bank. So it shot directly up in the blink of an eye, straight up through the cloud bank, which was above it, and cut a crisp, clear, round hole through the clouds in the shape, basically, of the object, and then just disappeared. And that's what was reported uh, by the witnesses. Your description of the craft says that it seemed to be about the angular size of a quarter or a half dollar held at arm's length. Now, that's pretty darn small, but the witnesses, or at least in the book, you you say that the estimates were that this thing was between 22 and 88 feet in diameter. Now, that's that's a small thing, but how can you possibly know what the size of this thing is unless you know how far away it is? Well, it's estimates. I mean, again, you're absolutely right. You don't know exactly how far it was. And I think those figures were provided by a group known as NARCAP, which did a lengthy study on the case. And they, again, it's estimates based on what the, uh, where the witnesses thought, how far they thought it was, to their best of their knowledge. I mean, that's why it's a rough estimate between 22 and 88 feet. Did people outside of the airport area see this? I mean, Chicago's a pretty big city. There are some reports of witnesses that were in parking lots and around the airport, but, you know, I'm not sure that those have been verified. I mean, I think the focus of the study that was done on it was was really focused on the United Airlines people because you have to be very careful about what witness reports you're going to accept as as authentic. But we, we know very certainly about over a dozen witnesses, I would say, that saw it at O'Hare. And, you know, we don't expect them to be able to explain this, but I think what the people involved would have liked would have been some kind of an investigation um, where the FAA could at least acknowledge, well, this is what the witnesses say they saw, and we can't explain it. And the problem is that the witnesses were not even asked to file reports, and they were not allowed to speak about this. And that creates all kinds of problems for them. They, They were not allowed to speak? I mean, obviously, they spoke to a reporter. They spoke off the record, and only a few of them did. There are 5,000 reports every year of unidentified craft, and who knows how many of them would be 
considered you know good reports, but nonetheless, they're not captured by news crews. Uh, there there doesn't seem to be physical evidence that we can take down to the local lab. So what does that mean? I mean, why why is it that they're so cryptic? Is there some easy explanation for that, or are the aliens, if they are aliens, just cryptic? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I wish there was an explanation, Seth, and I'm not even willing to assume that these are aliens. So I don't think we can say, and I, I just want to comment, though, that we do have physical evidence, and we don't have an actual craft, but we do have evidence, for instance, soil and plants that have been directly affected by the landing of these objects, and we have radar data. So there is photographs, too. I mean, there's a lot of physical evidence of a phenomenon, but the questions that everybody wants, such as the ones that you ask, you know, why would they be so elusive and why this and why that? Are they aliens? I don't think we have answers to. And I just wish that more scientists would take an interest in it because these are the people that need to come to the, get to the bottom of this issue. Well, interesting, the scientific community, it isn't a matter of just saying to them, I'm sure, you know, you ought to investigate this. They're going to say to you, well, on what basis? So I would ask you, if you walked into the research lab of your local university uh, to try and convince those guys to, you know, look into the UFO phenomenon, what is the best case that you would present to them? What would you lay on their tables? Yeah, well, I mean, and it's very—it's a very difficult question because, uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot of physical evidence. We have enough physical evidence to show that something's going on, but the problem is, you know, these things, these events occur normally once and then they're over. So how do you go about investigating them? I think that's what you're asking. I mean, the first thing I would hand to a scientist is I would, I, and I'm, I would hand them my book. And I want to point out that half of this book is not written by me, so I'm not just sort of trying to sell my own product here, but there are chapters in this book written by the, the generals, pilots, and government officials that we're talking about in the title. And I would just, I would want scientists to read it. And then I think that I would ask the scientists, you know, given if, if they're willing to accept the veracity of what's in this book, how would they, what would they suggest? What kind of methodology could they develop to approach this? If they were, if they had the resources to develop any kind of methodology that they wanted, you know, advanced telescopes, equipment, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, but I guess I'm willing to assume that if we have a problem, a physical problem within science that we want to solve, they can come up with a way to learn a lot more about it than what we already know. And I guess I'm, I'm hoping that the scientists will take on the, the job of figuring out the best way to do that. Leslie Kane, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me, Seth. Leslie Kane is a journalist and director of Investigations for the Coalition for Freedom of Information, a group working to establish media credibility for UFOs and working for the release of governmental information about them. She's the author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Coming up, another investigative journalist looks at the UFO phenomenon, but with very different conclusions. It's Saucer's Apprentice on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. 
Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Leslie Kane is not the only reporter who has investigated the UFO phenomenon. Ben Radford has also examined these extraordinary claims, but comes to a different conclusion. Ben is the managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine. Ben, in your long career as someone who has investigated UFOs and sorted through the evidence, has there ever been a case that nearly convinced you that aliens have visited this planet? Nothing that's ever come close to convincing me. I, uh, I've, I'm certainly happy to look at evidence. Um, I'm intrigued by... UFO sightings and reports and photographs and videos, just like anyone else is. Uh, but uh, you know, in order to investigate things, you have to go beyond that. You have to you have to actually seek out the good evidence. And unfortunately, so far, nothing really compelling has been presented to me. I'm 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 open to the idea. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was my my, my follow up there because it isn't that you've made up your mind, as uh, skeptics so often are accused of having made up their mind. If they brought you good evidence, you could be convinced. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I do my investigations and my research, uh, I don't go into trying to prove or disprove things, uh, whether it's, you know, ghosts or, or alien visitations or, or anything else, because that's not scientific. I mean, the, the way to go about it is you look at the available evidence and you try to draw the, the most logical and parsimonious conclusions. Okay, but to get back to this question of evidence, there are tens of thousands of reported sightings every year, certainly on that order of magnitude. Uh, and, and many people will say, all right, maybe the cases that are presented to Benjamin Radford are not convincing. But doggone, if you're talking tens of thousands, the truth must be in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. One of the things you often come across in, in this line of work is people who sort of they fall back on the where there's smoke, there's fire uh, argument. That is, there are so many sightings that some of them must be real. And uh, there's actually a logical fallacy in there. Uh, no, <laughs> that, that's not necessarily true. It's not that it's not as if if you have over X number of sightings that automatically you know validates at least some of them. It's entirely possible. Indeed, it's it's in fact likely that the vast majority, if not all, the sightings of a particular class of of UFO sightings or what have you are mistakes or misidentifications or hoaxes. Ben, what are the objects most often mistaken for UFOs? Well, there's a wide variety, and it really depends on the case. The planet Venus is often mistaken for UFOs, sometimes comets, shooting stars, things that people are just sort of seeing, sometimes headlights from passing cars being reflected against low clouds, or hoaxes. Hoaxes are actually fairly common depending on where you are, or misidentifications. Well, one of the most recent sightings occurred in New York City, and of course there was a lot of coverage of this because in New York City you're going to get a lot of coverage. A lot of people are going to see it. Something was seen on the sky. A lot of emergency calls were made that day by witnesses trying to report something that was happening. What was happening? Well, in that particular case, I got a call from ABC News asking me to comment on the footage, and to be honest with you, I hadn't seen the footage at all, and so I, I sort of had to rush over to my computer and check out the competitor's website to look at the video footage. And uh, it was uh, a group of glowing objects up in the sky above Manhattan. And uh, the objects seemed to be moving kind of in a pattern, but not at any high rate of speed or anything. And so the, the, the reporters asked me, well, what do I make of it? And of course, as an investigator, I don't like to be rushed. <laughs> I don't like having a, a reporter you know, staring over my shoulder, either literally or figuratively, saying, what is this? What is this? What is this? 
But in this particular case, I, I was able to to correctly identify the UFOs as uh, as balloons. Uh, they were actually escaped party balloons, and I knew this partly because of some research and experiments that Joe Nickel and I did several years back uh, in Buffalo, New York. So they were balloons. Did, did, does that happen often? It happens more often than you would expect. Uh, either either balloons that were accidentally released from a party or you know someone passing by, or um, there's actually been several occasions where there were hoaxes. For example, people would tie uh, road flares to balloons. That actually happened in 2009 in New Jersey, where there was uh, some hoaxers that had released some some helium balloons with flares tied to them and and you know these were floating up into the sky and quite understandably people didn't know what they were in fact in some of the reports there was a an airline pilot who I was quoted as saying, oh, you know, I'm an airline pilot of, you know, I, I've had decades of experience and, you know, they were completely mysterious. Well, of course they were mysterious to the airline pilot because airline pilots aren't used to seeing road flares tied to balloons in the night sky. When you speak of flares, it causes me to think of the incident a couple of years ago in uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix lights. Yes. Uh, you know, lights in the sky, that, that, you know, they weren't just a flash in the sky. These things sort of hung there for a long time. There's videotape of it. Thousands of people saw this thing. It's become known as the Phoenix Lights. And the military, which has a base in the area, said, yeah, well, they're just flares. Most people, or a lot of people, don't believe that. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that people have a hard time believing these things is because they they assume that the reason that there's not good evidence or the reason there's not better evidence of extraterrestrial presence on Earth is that there's a conspiracy. That is, many of the believers are frustrated by the fact that there's not good, hard evidence of these things. They're, they're wondering, you know, where, where are the alien bodies? Where are the crashed saucers? Where, where is the hard evidence? And the best way that they can come up with to explain that away is because it's being hidden away. There's a conspiracy to, to keep it quiet. And so that's really the thinking that goes on behind it. The belief is that there is a conspiracy covering up UFO evidence, um, not only across nations, but across decades. So, so you don't buy this worldwide conspiracy. It does seem a bit improbable, given the lack of cooperation on any other issue. But the other argument that's frequently made is that scientists simply dismiss this phenomenon out of hand, that they won't look. And this is one of the arguments in this new book by Leslie Keen, UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. She says that, you know, there, there may be something real here, and nobody will look at it. The government, for some reason, doesn't want to uh, investigate it. Nobody else seems to want to investigate it. What's your response to that? Well, there's a couple errors right there. First of all, UFO sightings have been investigated. The, the claim that the U.S. government has never looked into these things is patently false. Uh, they have looked into these things. Now, Keene and others may not accept their conclusions, and in fact, oftentimes they don't. Uh, the second issue is that they are misunderstanding how science operates. And again, I, I see this in other areas as well, whether it's ghost research, Bigfoot research, what have you. The, the claim is, well, you know, the reason that we don't have better evidence for these things is that, uh, that scientists won't look at this. Scientists aren't going to spend their time on this. Well, the, <laughs> to the extent that that's true, it's because there's not good evidence. Science operates on evidence. So, you know, at the point in which they can present evidence that is something to work from, something to create a testable hypothesis from, scientists will become more interested. But if all you're going to present are anecdotes and stories and fuzzy photos of something that may or may not be a UFO in the sky, there's nowhere to go from that. But, but, but what about the fact that they'll say, but, yeah, wait a minute, some of these people who are saying there's something to this are, you know, they're professional pilots, they're astronauts, they're people who should know. 
Uh, yeah, there are people who should know better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say better, but you did. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I, there are people who should know better. I mean, look, and again, this I, I hear this all the time in a wide variety of fields. What they'll do is they'll trot out some established person, for example, an astronaut. Edgar Mitchell is a famous example. Uh, he wrote a book called Way of the Explorer in which he talks about how he believes that extraterrestrials out there and that they've visited Earth. Uh, the problem is that, that there's no good or hard evidence of these. I respect astronauts and I respect people who've made a career out of doing astronomy and, and pilots and everything else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe everything that they're going to say. Ultimately, it's just it's an argument from, from authority. It's saying that, well, you, you should listen to Edgar Mitchell because he's an astronaut. You know, <laughs> there has to be more to it than just that. I'm speaking with Benjamin Radford, scientific paranormal investigator. Uh, ben, let me just take up one more well-known incident, and this occurred just, what, about two years ago at one of the major Chicago airports. People mm -hmm. saw what looked like a big silvery disk in the sky, and then suddenly it seemed to go vertically straight up and, and cut a hole through the clouds. Now, a lot of people saw this. What was it? <laughs> what was it? Uh, I can tell you what it probably wasn't, which was a, an extraterrestrial aircraft. What, what you find, I mean, the, the Chicago airport example is a very good one because when you look at the totality of the evidence, again, the story falls apart. It's certainly true that, that there was a pilot, and in fact, I think it was a, a crew of people that, that saw this. The problem is that no one else saw it. This is the key to understanding this, is that, look, if there actually was some sort of unknown, mysterious extraterrestrial craft above one of America's busiest airports, I think someone else would have noticed it. I think that maybe some of the other pilots in the area, maybe the control tower, <laughs> all the people at the airport, it is unlikely in the extreme that, that what they saw is actually an extraterrestrial craft. Could it have been optical illusion? That's my best guess. You know, but to posit that an ET was at, again, one of America's busiest airports and no one else besides this one crew saw it, uh, just beggars belief. You know, Ben, I would love to be a fly on the wall at parties that you go to because, you know, polls show that somewhere between a third and a half of uh, all Americans believe that we are being visited. It's, it's not a fringe belief. It's not a 0.01% of the population. You know, you could grab any group of people and there'll be quite a few people who think this is true. And then they talk to you. <laughs> What's their reaction when you suggest to them that uh, maybe we're not being visited? Well, it's actually interesting. Oftentimes, the first, whenever I try to explain to people the, the, the reasons and the arguments why I think that uh, there's not good evidence for us having been visited by ETs, one of the first things people come back with is, well, I think it's arrogant to think that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. Yeah. And my answer is, I'm sorry, <laughs> where did you get that? I, I didn't say anything about that and said, in fact... I personally believe that there probably is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, my position about whether UFOs and ETs are, are visiting Earth has nothing to do with that. that. That's not the question. The question is, are these alien intelligences uh, visiting Earth, and is there evidence for that? Well, then finally, Ben, suppose uh, we really were being visited. Suppose the craft really did you know, decide to, I don't know, not land on the White House lawn. They don't seem to do that anymore, but fly over a city, whatever. What sort of evidence would convince you? Uh, <laughs> I would have to say just about anything but what we have now. You know, I would love to see an alien landing on the White House lawn. If we had, uh, for, for example, some remnant of a spacecraft that was verified as being a metal, for example, that was not found on Earth. 
completely foreign and alien, uh, that to me would be good evidence. And that sort of claim has occasionally appeared, usually in the context of alien implants. People uh, for decades now have claimed uh, a handful of people, not not too many, I'd say maybe a few dozen, have have claimed at one point or another that aliens have abducted them and left weird, unknown metals and objects inside them after being probed and, and abducted. And weirdly enough, every single time those objects have been subjected to analysis, they've either mysteriously disappeared or on the way to the analysis, or they've been found to be ordinary metals and uh, substances found here on Earth. It sounds to me, Ben, like you're not afraid to uh, go to the airport and take a flight. Ben Radford, thanks so much for talking with me. Good to be on. Ben Radford looks for the evidence as a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and as managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine. You can hear more of Seth's conversation with Ben by downloading our iTunes app. Next, why the fascination with UFOs persists, the role of popular culture in shaping it, and some of Hollywood's best alien ships. It's Saucer's Apprentice on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome back to Skeptic Check. Our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Reports of alien ships may have become fashionable in the last 70 years, but the idea of intelligent beings in the sky is an ancient one. That's the conclusion of Thomas Bullard, a folklorist at Indiana University. He's written a book about the myth and mystery of UFOs, and years ago he did his own interviews with people who claim to have personally been visited by aliens. And some of these cases he says he can't explain. Tom, you're a folklorist, so what's the connection between that and UFO sightings? Well, UFOs have a lot of connections with folklore in, in the sense that they seem to be a modern version of many of the same uh, thematic material that we find in traditional folklore, such as the uh, the fairy kidnap or the savior from the skies coming down to uh, rescue mankind from himself, or also the idea that uh, there's some danger from the skies that might come down and, and harm us. So it sounds like, I mean, this is a theme that goes back quite some way, the idea of external beings, intelligent beings that interact with us. It's the basis of most uh, religious mythology, the idea that there's some sort of superior beings that come from the sky to the earth and interact with humans and oftentimes have a great deal of influence on the shaping and the creation of, of mankind and civilization. In the 1980s, you began a large-scale analysis of, uh, I think it was like 300 cases of alien abduction dating back half a century, now back half a century. What, what, what did you find in that investigation? It was interesting that many of the cases were remarkably coherent, given the expectation that you would have alien beings that would reflect the kinds of things that you would see in the variety of Hollywood aliens. That there would be, since it's such a fantastic story, that it would be much more varied than it was. It turned out to be a surprisingly coherent story, especially from the people who seemed to be legitimate in what they were saying, the ones who were clearly faking or 
fantasizing tended to have a much more varied story. So what you're saying is that they told similar stories? I mean, the abductions were similar in in what sense? The stories were similar in the course of events, in the description of the alien beings and the whatever happened to the people during the abduction itself. There was a considerable amount of consistency in, in the whole story, which I thought was rather surprising. Well, maybe Carl Jung would say that this is some aspect of the collective unconscious. I mean, for example, if you ask people who've seen ghosts, and I think a third of the American populace believes that ghosts exist, you know, they'll very often tell similar stories because there's sort of an iconic ghost out there, and they do iconic things like rattle chains and make noises at night and, you know, empty houses and stuff like that. Could could it not be the same phenomenon here? Well, the surprising thing was that the image of the alien, as we now know it, was not so familiar, given the at the time I was doing this particular uh, research. Yet you get very similar images in these abduction reports, the legitimate ones, seemingly legitimate ones, the people who are very sincere about it and who weren't you know, trying to promote a, a joke or make money or something of that sort, tended to describe aliens in pretty much the same way, yet that image had not yet solidified in the culture. Do you think any of them were truly abducted by extraterrestrial beings? I mean, what, what's your own take on it? I can't deny the possibility. I would say it's probably unlikely, but I don't know any alternate explanation that, that accounts for it. There's not the collective consciousness as opposed to the collective unconsciousness in place at the time that most of my cases took place to really sustain that idea. All right. Well, Tom Bullard, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thomas Bullard is a folklorist at Indiana University and the author of The Myth and Mystery of UFOs. There's no consensus on what's behind the alien abduction stories, but Harvard psychologist Susan Clancy can offer an explanation. We spoke to her when a book of hers came out, Abducted, How People Came to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. Her interviews and research with people who claimed to be abducted led her to identify at least one phenomenon that may explain the experience, sleep paralysis. Waking up in the middle of the night, sort of being unable to move and feeling some kind of sinister presence in the room and even seeing things or hearing things, this, this is consistent with how people describe an episode of sleep paralysis. Maybe uh, you could explain that a little bit more. Sleep paralysis sure. affects, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not an well, insignificant part of the population. Right? You know, people who study it say they consider it non-pathological, sort of like a hiccup in sleep cycles. And maybe up to about 30% of the population has had such an experience. Usually they occur when your sleep cycles get disrupted, like you're, if you're a night shift worker or if you took a flight to Helsinki or something like that, or maybe you drank too much uh, the night before. But essentially, normally your body moves seamlessly between being asleep and waking up. But in sleep paralysis, there's kind of this uh, disconnect in sleep cycles. So your body is still asleep and therefore experiencing the paralysis that normally accompanies sleep. You know, otherwise you'd be thrashing around when you're dreaming. But even though your body's still asleep, your mind is awake. And it's apparently a very strange and terrifying experience for people to have it. Why does it result in the appearance of an alien? Well, you know what? I think what happens is, and historians who have studied sleep paralysis have noticed that as long as it's been recorded in history, people have looked for explanations. And the explanations for these experiences sort of follow the cultural scripts that are available. 
So in past times, it might have been considered a demon that was in your room. Or in Scotland, it was an old hag. That was part of a cultural legend, that an old hag comes into your room and sits on your chest. So it's witches or demons or angels or devils. And I think in, since about 1970, the cultural script that's been around to explain these things in the States is that uh, it could be an alien abduction. So I think it's our 20th and 21st century explanation for these weird sleep paralysis experiences. So are a lot of these experiences then similar? Are they what they describe, you know, they, they, they all fit the, the common pattern? Yes. Let me just say as quickly as possible how to describe it. I get a lot of abductees who complain to me, you know, Dr. Glancy, don't tell me my abduction experience was sleep paralysis. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, I was taken, they communicated with me, I saw labs where they were harvesting my, my eggs or my sperm, and, you know, there's a whole narrative script that accompanies it. And that's true. However, a sleep paralysis experience, based on the abductees I've talked to, is usually the seed of the alien abduction experience that then gets recovered during psychotherapy or hypnosis or with an alien abduction researcher. So to make this less abstract, you have someone who has an episode of sleep paralysis. They wake up and they say, holy God, what was that? There was some weird presence in my room. I couldn't move. I was terrified. Could that have been an alien abduction? And then they start reading books about alien abduction, and then maybe they end up in an alien abduction researcher's office. And at that point, they're asked to go back to that time when you couldn't move in your bed. Tell me what happened next. Were there aliens in the room? What did they hold in their hands? Did they take you through a spaceship? And during hypnosis, research shows people are prone to create false memories and get confused between fantasy and reality. And I think what happens is during these hypnosis sessions with abduction researchers, they develop, they sort of recover this whole narrative event. Susan, what happens when you offer this alternative explanation to people who've had these experiences? bad thing. <laughs> I just, I, basically, I don't anymore. And you know what? I understand. For the same reason, I wouldn't tell somebody that believes they had a religious visitation that what happened to them wasn't, you know, the Virgin Mary on their bed, but was probably sleep paralysis. It's because you're taking away something from them that's very important. And, you know, I just don't think that's my role. I'm a researcher. I'm there to try and understand these experiences in the most parsimonious and probable way. And I think, uh, you know, that explanation is not an extraterrestrial one. Okay. Susan Clancy, thank you very much for talking with us. Sure. Susan Clancy is a psychology researcher at Harvard University and author of Abducted, How People Came to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. Seth, it seems like one thing people can agree with is that popular culture has added to this persistence of belief in UFOs. And, of course, that also includes Hollywood. Indeed, and Hollywood is probably the greatest contributor to to the myth, to the ethos, and to all the iconic images of, of, of spacecraft. Well, we posted a question on Facebook to listeners of Are We Alone, asking them what their favorite UFO movie was. And this is separate from an alien movie, but specifically... Uh, movies that had great ships in them. Right. And that's somewhat different, of course, because there are movie aliens, after all, that arrive without the benefit of, you know, us ever seeing their spacecraft. So let's start with one that was cited as a favorite by Facebook fans. (laughs) 
Seth, you probably recognize this as a scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I agree with this choice. I love this movie. This was Steven Spielberg's first alien movie. came out in 1977, starring Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary, who has an encounter with a UFO. And here's an understatement. His life changes as a result. Yeah, well, that's right. And by the way, I like the film because it included a lot of abuse of mashed potatoes. (laughs) And Close Encounters is obviously a very appropriate film for our show because the conceit is that the government is running a secret UFO program covering up the presence of uh, of craft and so on. Well, let's talk about the ship. I mean, the ship in this movie, Close Encounters, uh, should get billing all by itself. It's big. It's actually a beautiful ship, all those colorful lights. You, you, there's so many windows. I'm not quite sure why you need so many windows when you're mostly just traveling through space where there's nothing to see. But there they are. Okay, well, what is the technology that would bring this huge lumbering ship to our planet. Does this defy physics? Well, it doesn't defy physics. You could, you know, if you had enough fuel, uh, just about any engine would do it if you're willing to sit in the spacecraft for a very long time. Okay, so it's not impossible that this ship could could come to our planet. The big question then in this scene, of course, is is you have the, the humans communicating with the ship with this five-note tonal phrase. I suppose that's what it is. Is that realistic? Is that how we would communicate with another alien species? Well, it assumes a whole lot of things. Like, for example... (laughs) You can carry a note. Yeah, you can carry a note (laughs) that you can hear, for example. I mean, that might not be so unreasonable (laughs) if they live on a planet with an atmosphere, probably they can hear. Uh, But the idea is that five notes, there's not a whole lot of information in five notes, right? I mean, you know, maybe... The excuse here, the the idea is that we'll just use these first five notes to get started, and then we'll elaborate on it, and we'll, we'll use more notes. So it's kind of a primer. We'll, we'll teach you the language, and then we'll start talking. And that sort of happens in the film, because they start with five notes, they repeat that about ten times, and then eventually they begin to play more and more music. It begins to sound like, you know, a newly found composition of Aaron Copeland or something. <laughs> well, that's why it's actually this beautiful exchange between the humans and the aliens that seems sort of definitely otherworldly. Okay, let's move on to the next alien ship or the next UFO movie that people liked. And I, I agree with this choice as well. Now, to everyone's surprise, the ship didn't come to a stop over Manhattan or Washington or Chicago, but instead coasted to a halt directly over the city of Johannesburg. District 9? District 9! Yeah, well, the ship in District 9 is not really a UFO, technically, because we all know what it is. It's been identified. It's the ship that brought these prawns, as they're called, to Earth. Now, District 9 is the movie that came out in 2009 in which aliens live in these slum-like conditions in an alien-human segregated Johannesburg, South Africa. Okay, let's look at the ship, though. Now, this ship is amazing, Seth, because it hovers motionless for more than 20 years. It's something like almost 30 years. Is it possible to do this without pilots or fuel? Or could you do it at all? Yeah, you know, it's not up on cinder blocks or anything like that. It makes you wonder. Here they are worrying about the social problem of these aliens here on the ground when they've got this giant ship hovering above the city for 28 years. I mean, what they ought to be doing is talking to these aliens and say, look, we'll give you the best living conditions you want. Just explain to us how you get this ship to hover there. What about helicopter? A helicopter can hover, right? You didn't see any big rotating blades on that thing, did you? You didn't hear, you know, huge motors droning or anything like that. No, we don't have the technology to do that. I mean, you know, what it looks like is, uh, you know, uh, negative gravity or something like that. 
Now, one other point of the physics, one of the characters gets onto the ship by use of a tractor beam. Now, these tractor beams seem to appear in these UFO movies all the time. What is a tractor beam? I know we talked about it earlier in the show, but remind us. Yeah, it sounds somewhat agricultural. <laughs> I, a tractor beam, well, I, you know, I think that came from Star Trek because they had tractor beams. And all it is is just a tow line, some sort of high-tech tow line, right? You got some some rocket ship up there. You just captured the Klingon ship or, you know, or maybe it's one of your ships and it doesn't work anymore. And you got to get it back to port. And so what you do is you use a tractor beam, whatever that is. Are tractors involved? Were they ever involved with these beams? Well... <laughs> Well, only in the sense that functionally it's the same as a tractor. You use a tractor to pull things on a farm, right? Plows or threshers or machines or something. So I think that's the only reason they're called tractor beams. But how they work, how you shoot a beam at some rocket behind you and somehow that glues you onto it so that you can tow it around the galaxy. I mean, you know, that's left to the reader to decide how it works. So let's move on to Independence Day. This is another film that listeners voted as most memorable. Yeah, Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum. And this ship is remarkable probably because it's so incredibly, relentlessly nasty. It it does things like, you know, just blowing up the White House, for goodness sakes. What sort of device did they use to blow up the White House? Is that just a laser? Yeah, it looks like a you know a powerful laser beam. And indeed, I mean, that's at least plausible. Our own military has got laser beams, and some of them actually do something destructive. I don't think they could blow up the White House. And, and you have to ask why they blow up the White House. I guess that's just psycho warfare or something like that. So finally, one more film, and I know that this one is your favorite, Seth, War of the Worlds, and not just any War of the Worlds No, film. the 1953 original, not the Spielberg remake with Tom Cruise. I thought that the original film was far more terrifying. I, I thought that the terror was gone from the second second version. Now, remind us what ship is in the 1953 original, because what I remember is not a ship so much as that pod thing that falls to Earth that they think is a meteorite. They run out there, um, they take a look at it, it's kind of burned this big hole, and then that's, that cap starts to unscrew. Right. Is that considered a ship, or was there also a ship in the film? Yeah, well, indeed. It, 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 the thing that lands looks like just a big rock which doesn't doesn't speak very refined engineering, but okay. And then indeed, it, it, you know, the cap unscrews by itself, and then out comes this device, this machine, which is kind of a ship because it can float around the countryside blowing stuff up. So those those are their local, if you will, you know, the, the, the asteroid is kind of a landing craft, and these are tanks that get out and start doing the destruction. But I do think that what was so strong about the first film was that they didn't actually show you the Martians except almost toward the end of the film, and only very briefly. And I think that the terror is greater when you don't see him. And it's like in Jaws, you know, as long as you don't see the shark, it's very scary. Well, you can join the discussion of various topics you hear on Big Picture Science on Facebook, Twitter, or on our blog, which is available at bigpicturescience.org. Thanks to help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler in the production of our show today. It's made possible with support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. One final note about UFOs. A few years ago, Seth and I visited Roswell, New Mexico, to record a show about the famous crash that took place there in 1947. Was it an alien ship, Seth? Well, that's the popular impression, but uh, you can listen to the archived episode. Yeah, if you want to hear more. Now, people questioned whether we really went to Roswell, New Mexico, and drove through the desert, and we did. What you heard were not sound effects. We really did go there. However, how we ended that program is another matter. Well, Molly, it's time to hit the road, head back to Albuquerque, a night drive through the desert. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful night. But Seth, I wish that guy would dim his high beams. Yeah, they are bright. Must be halogens. Why don't you flash them? It's still too. It's still too bright. Is that even a car? It looks like the lights are lifting right off the highway. It's, it's rising into the air. Look! Look! Oh, it's above us. Seth, maybe you should stop the car. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>